0: Hey everybody, welcome to episode 33 of Creative Writing. I'm your host, Lysander Theodore Anderton IV. On today's episode, I've got a serious question to ask you. Are you afraid as a human being of eventually being replaced by robots or artificial intelligence? Do you think that we're on the brink of a technological breakthrough where... We should push for things that take control away from us? Or should we pull back from making ourselves dumber and undoing what thousands of years of evolution have been doing to make us evolve into what we are as human beings? Are you somebody that looks forward to the creature comforts that technology can provide? Or are you someone that thinks that the more technology we get, the more we take away from the experience of being who we are? I'm gonna ask you some of these questions today. Let's begin our show. First things first, though, I wanna know how big that pizza is that you're eating right now. I hope everyone had a happy 4th of July. I know I did. I was down in America's finest city, California's number one destination for the 4th of July vacation. San Diego. I believe that's Spanish for Wales. Never mind. So today is going to be, hopefully, a tech-heavy show. Uh, A lot of car talk. So, I, you know, for a motorcycle podcast to be car-centric is a little bit weird. But bear with me. You'll see what it's all about. So before I get into all the fun tech stuff, the first thing I want to get into is I want to mention the ESPN bodies issue that came out. If you're not familiar with the ESPN bodies issue, that's where each year they take some famous athletes, uh, sports personalities, they get them completely nude, and they photograph their bodies. And we're talking, you know, some very, very uh, beautiful people, you know, whether they're big or small, male or female, they're all, uh, I would say, at the top of their game. Check it out. In this issue, Ryan Dungey is on his motorcycle popping a wheelie naked, So ladies or guys, uh, check him out and uh, see what true talent from the motocross and supercross world looks like in the buff. I got to say, for an athlete, Ryan is in some pretty good shape, and it should be no, no surprise since he's pretty much dominated the season this year and for the last few years. Now, last week, no, a couple weeks ago, he broke his neck at Thunder Valley even after his crash, where he landed like on his head and his and his neck a little bit, he got up and went from 19th to 4th with a broken neck and then went to the medical station afterwards and they, you know, did an x-ray or an MRI or something and discovered he had a broken vertebrae. So we're talking about a guy who's in peak physical conditioning. Once you see the EASPN bodies issue, I, it almost like I said EASPN, but I said ESPN bodies issue, once you get past looking at the uh, other sex that you can't quit looking at, whether you're you know, women looking at men or women or men looking at the men or women, check out Ryan. You'll, you'll tell why he was able to crash and still get up and come in fourth, and it's because of his conditioning, it's because of the work that he puts in, and it's because of the actual physical condition of his body. The only reason I wanted to mention this is because it's pretty important. Um, if you're doing anything motorcycle-related, whether it's adventure riding, motocross, anything like that, you understand what being in physical condition is all about. And hopefully by seeing uh, this issue, no matter what sport you like or what you're into, it'll help you show the kind of work that these people put in. There's even a huge, big center, I believe, with some linebacker guy. I'm not, I'm not into um, football that you don't play with your feet. But um yeah he's huge and he's kind of flat and blubbery, but you know what? He's underneath all that he's muscle too. So you gotta understand that he is what's necessary to perform the operation in his sport. So when you're looking at all the other people, you'll just see that basically the Peak physical conditioning that these people are in. And I'm proud to say that as most motorcyclists, um, our machines do the work for us. So sometimes we get out of shape. But if you're doing hardcore off-road stuff or motocross stuff, you definitely want to be in shape. Your motorcycle can can do some of it for you, but as you'll soon see, it can not do everything for you. So having said that, the next thing I want to talk about is uh, I would like you to find a picture on harley davidson's websites or almost any manufacturer's websites for that matter of the freaking left side of the bike why is it that no manufacturer will ever show the kickstand side of the bike do they not want you to see the kickstand i swear i've looked at harley's website for the past few years i I use it to research work i use suzuki's website to research work I use a lot of bike websites to research work and I got to say of all the sites that Yamaha and Kawasaki are the best about showing all angles of the bike. Now true, uh, Harley does have a 360 view, pretty crappy one at that. It's not like BMWs where it's pretty flat. They they definitely want to feature certain areas of the bike so you can't get a directly behind the bike shot. It's kind of from an angle. They used to have just a straight up 360 view but they did away with that a few years ago nowadays it's a really crappy view and it's really hard to see the left side of the bike why is it that manufacturers don't want you to see the left side of the bike i just want to know that's all i want to know and why is it that suzuki maybe it's because they're the i don't know the least represented manufacturer and, you know you hardly see they have bold new graphics they always get called out for not having you know very much um innovation you know compared to the other brands yet they're always winning yet nobody buys them you know what i mean like if there if it wasn't for the supermoto and the Gixer, i don't think people would know what suzuki was i'm sure the boulevard line is uh not that you know basically not that popular in the United States and, um, you know, I can guarantee that not many people are cruising around on the tu two hundred and fifty. So I don't know what the hell the rest, if it wasn't for motocross bikes and Jixers, I don't know what Suzuki would do, but at any rate, they have like the least amount of pictures of all the manufacturers of their bikes. It's just super frustrating when you're trying to get a good representation without going to someone else's site or some fan site you know and at that point you don't know what's stock and what's modified so i ask you why why is it that manufacturers don't want you to see the kickstand down on their bikes and why when they take those crazy studio pics do they always photoshop the kickstand out what's wrong with having a kickstand huh or a center stand for that matter i think every bike should have a center stand so you can do chain or belt or shaft maintenance on it. What the hell? What's wrong with you? Why don't you have a center stand? Huh, Harley? I'm calling you out. Another thing I wanted to mention was that, you know, I I know I mentioned that I went to Born Free last weekend. I was thinking about the premise of creative writing and, and all the creative listeners we have out there and people that, you know, whether you're, you have the factory do the work for you or you do the work yourself. I'm definitely going to give some tips to the DIY people out there. Having gone to Born Free and looked at some of the paint that was there, there was some exquisite examples there. There were some specimens that they really took their time. They did lots of detail. I was explaining to somebody some buddy that I was with how they got the actual pattern under the paint some of it was pretty damn detailed and some of it took a long time to do what it does and if you're familiar with a lot of the Harley paint sets um, they're really the only manufacturer that does a custom program as far as like painting you know and, and having metal parts that get painted so I don't I really couldn't talk about anybody else right now. The you know, even the Honda Furies and stuff like that, you could take them somewhere to get them painted, but they don't have a factory custom thing similar to what Harley does. So when you order from Harley, you can get all sorts of bitchin' inlays. You can get all sorts of crazy candy customs. You can get all sorts of pinstriping and this and that. You you know, the the possibilities are endless. And I know a lot of people don't really You know, for for whatever reason, people get divided. Like they don't like Harley, they like everything else, or they like Harley and they don't like everything else. Well, I'm here to tell you that I like all motorcycles. I work with all motorcycles. You know, I don't care what it is. From I guarantee you, from an accessories point of view, you cannot get any more in depth from the factory than Harley. They by far blow everyone else away when it comes to factory accessories. If you don't believe me. Uh, go down and grab let me see do do you still know what a phone book is does anybody do you guys that are listening know what a phone book is and if you do raise your hand okay you do and you do okay you guys are old like me Anyway, all you young folks that Google everything or, you know, look up on the websites for phone numbers and this and that, a phone book used to be this big, fat, like, encyclopedia. If you're a teacher or an educator, think about your teacher's guide, the big old book that comes that tells you all your lesson plans and all that stuff for all of your, you know, whatever courses. Um, And if you're a fisherman, no, I'm just kidding. Fisherman can't read. Anyway, what I'm getting at is basically the Harley-Davidson parts and accessories catalog. I have one right here near me. It is roughly an inch and a half thick, if not Yeah, It's about the thickness of a two by four. So a little bit over an inch. And how is a two by four? It's like one and three quarters or one and seven eighths or something like that. Uh, Anyways, you know, a Harley-Davidson parts and accessories catalog is basically chock full of... Paints, paint colors, paint to match—all these things that you you just won't find with other manufacturers. And not only that, but they're really detailed. They can come from a paint scheme, and and actually they've pared it down. They're, it used to be crazy. I have, I, well, I threw them all away because I don't need them anymore. But I used to have some uh, PNA catalogs from like 2006. And holy shit, I mean, it was just nuts. You could have, like, knocked someone out with this thing if you threw it at them. So, basically, going to Born Free and seeing all these cool paint jobs on these bikes reminded me of what you can't really get from it. You know, you have to go to a show, unless you're a Harley owner and you flip through the PA catalog, you can't really see this from any other manufacturer. You have to go to a show to see the type of paintwork that was you know, that was done there, the type of detail that people put into this stuff. And to know how they do it is is pretty amazing. You see, you know, you'll see a lot of brushed aluminum. that has been clear coated over with uh, colors, you know, little inlays and it it adds depth. And what they do is they don't paint the bike. They they brush it with a little tool and it makes marks, you know, on it. And they make a pattern. And then they lay, you know, they tape over that pattern and they basically paint around it and then they clear coat the whole thing with layers of clear coat. And then they might even put like a metallic in some of the clear coat so that the whole thing just looks like you're looking through glass at the brushed aluminum. And you're going, how that looks like aluminum. That looks like steel, you know, paint. What the hell? It's because it is. It's the metal that you're seeing inside there. And sometimes if it's yellow over the top of that, and you're like, well, how do they like paint that yellow on there on those brush marks? You know, the brushed metal look. Well, they add yellow to the clear coat. I, I don't know. It's hard to explain. If you saw it in person, you'd know what I mean. If you go to Harley's website and look at their PNA catalog, like I'm telling you, you can look up some of their uh, inlaid colors and things like that. They used to have a lot more. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. You know, you'd probably have to look in the, in the uh, bag or shit to find it now. But regardless, you won't find anything outside of factory stuff like you will with Harley, unless you go to a show like Born Free. So the other thing I wanted to say is that, you know, these guys that customize the bikes go through all this painstaking trouble of putting these really bitchin' custom paintings, murals, all this shit, you know, protecting it, they, you know... Painstakingly paint this on there and airbrush it on there and then they gloss over it and you have to like buff it out and you have to color sand it and all this shit just to get it to look glassy smooth you know like super glass finish you know if you wanted it to look like a lumpy bag of shiny marbles then that's fine too you know you didn't do that great of a work body work job on it or whatever or it comes out dull or it just comes out um orange peely, that's one thing. But, I mean, these guys took some fucking time and did some great shit on these paint jobs. And that's what I wanted to talk about because I saw some other ones that looked pretty sweet. They passed the 10-10 rule, which is you're cruising at 10 miles an hour from 10 feet away. That thing looked bitchin'. I won't name names, and to be honest, I didn't really even look at who was the painter. It It was a custom painter. It wasn't a factory, so don't worry, guys, if you're buying shit from... HD or anything like that, Uh, it was a custom painter there and they had some of their stuff out on the table for you to check out and buy and see some of their samples. Um, there was a lot of people there doing pinstriping on sh- fucking skateboards and shit like that. It's like people will customize anything nowadays for you. People will ta- are taking this and applying it. They probably did boogie boards and surfboards and skateboards. I even got a couple picks of some Harleys with some custom leather skateboard holders on them. Like, it, it don't matter anymore. It's not, it's not 100% biker culture anymore. It's like sort of like hipster fun, you know, do what you want to do culture and that's cool I mean that's fine the thing is is that some of the guys hawking their paint there and hawking their skills to get back to the point when I'm looking at them up close and I used to work at a body shop and I know how this shit goes down I know how you do some of these custom paints and I used to work with a gentleman who actually owned his own business for a while painting custom hot rods and doing decals and shit like that on cars and it's and and I would watch pinstripers come out, and Jesus, I mean, the talent that these guys have to take a sable brush, run it down the side of a car all the way without wavering off, you know, more than like a a thousandth of a millimeter, you know, off their line. And to be able to do like these bitchin' pinstripes freehand is just, it's amazing. And the same with custom paints. The thing is, is when you're painting, a pattern like flames or you're painting like some of these uh, dragon scales and other shit that I saw there there was some pretty bitchin' examples of that and lots of flake I mean we're getting back in like I was like I I think I said before, it's kind of the retro sort of feel. So you got a lot of bright colors with a lot of bass boat metallic flake. Harley has been doing that forever. I used to make fun of them because who wants a bass boat metallic? You know, you used to see that on donk cars and now it's kind of coming back in the chopper scene. So whatever, I guess we're we're coming back to the the browns and greens of the, the 70s. And basically when I'm looking at some of these tanks... They're cool and they're really done well and they've got all that. They've got the glitter, they've got the sparkle, they got the bass boat flake, you know, metal flake in the paints. They got a lot of clear coat shit with metallic flake in it. They're, the the designs in them, the paintings are done really well and they lay flat and they look glassy and they're smooth. And then I saw some other ones that kind of look like you crumpled up some Lucky Charms or sparkly Farkle Flake cereal and dropped it over a, a gas tank had a design in it you could see uh, it was you know i'm kind of picking fly shit out of pepper here because i've had that i uh, and you know and it's no better than i can do i'm not a painter that was the thing when when painters do their shit it's magic and that's why i guess if you want something done that's crazy custom like this you get real good you practice and do it a shit ton before you throw it on your final product right you can't just go out there and fake it right away. I mean, I guess you can, because because some of the shit I saw that I'm about to describe to you is what I would consider subpar work when you see it compared to some of the master builders there. And so to compare, first, some of the master builders had these paint schemes that were pretty bitchin'. It's pretty cohesive throughout, you know, there's a definite theme. It wasn't just like a random... I'm gonna make some flames and fucking pink and green and orange chameleon flakes sparkle all over the thing so your eye gets distracted and you can't really see you shit what's going on. There was a definite theme, lots of shading. I mean, just think back to the seventies and early eighties of the van culture and the hot rod culture of, you know, I would say the sixties, but people started it in the sixties and they perfected it in the seventies with all the fading and the you know, the the shading and, and the airbrushing sort of paint jobs that came out then some really custom ass shit that we saw on the van culture in the early 80s and stuff like that and on all the fire chickens and all that stuff of the early 80s everybody thinks 60s and 70s but you go back and you look the 60s and the 70s it was really like the 80s where shit started to get perfected and you know a little bit wango tango so Yeah, I'm going to say late 70s, early 80s type of stuff where it was really beautiful and cohesive is what I'm getting at. You know, it was thought out, well thought out. Like I said, there was a theme and the execution was there over the entire theme and the technique. Then I saw some other ones like kind of by the guy that was pinstriping pinstri- skateboards. So if you were there and you can remember all the vendors laid out and you remember this, some dude that was pinstriping helmets, skateboards, fucking duffel bags, iPhone cases, whatever he could get his fucking hands on and everything was blue with white pinstripes. Um, there was a gas tank sitting right around there That that's the one I'm saying looked like you sprinkled uh, I don't know, fruity flakes all over. You just crumbled it and sprinkled some metallic cereal flakes all over this tank. It was kind of gold and green and orange and pink and yellow and everything in between. And it kind of had that chameleon, you know, you really couldn't tell what color it was because it was so many sparkly metallic colors. They had done a design in it. I forget if it was flames. I don't think it was flames, but it did have like an organic design where the, the pinkish yellow green laid over the orangish reddish yellow, yellow, you know, pink and... When I was looking on there, I was looking at the ridge right where the paints met, and the thing I was telling you earlier about the, the the depth, you know how things look deep and how things when you when you look at a paint job and you feel like you're looking into it, and that's done. That's not a that's not an accident. That is done on purpose, and that's a specific technique. It takes practice, it takes time, and takes materials. To be honest. So these guys that had this one out there just didn't have that. It kind of didn't look like they had a clear coat over it. It looked like they just had the metallic base coats down and that was it. And clear coat can only go so far because clear coat, you know, you you literally have to spray like 10 layers on it to get it super, super deep. However, these guys didn't, didn't even look like it had a clear coat on it. It looked like it was just a hard metallic candy paint. And what happens in that case is that you can't, whenever you paint something, you really got to feather it and you got to color sand it. And it takes a long time to do a paint job right, the way some of these looked, the way that some of the depth on some of these things looked and the the way the lines were really clean on them. There was a bike in particular that I'm thinking of that was blue and yellow with a swirled uh, metal like a brushed metal inlay on it. And that one was a beautiful, beautiful Harley with a nice paint job throughout the fender, the gas tank. um, Even some of the yellow in the paint matched some of the components on the bike, I believe. And that one was done well. That one did not have any jagged lines on it when you looked up close. That one had that deep um, clear coat feel because where they had the lines, where the blue was, was adjacent to the brushed metal and basically if you were to just paint that on there you would see the lip where the paint ended and the metal started but they went over it with so many coats of clear and then sanded it color sanded it flat went over it and you know you know buffed it went over it again with clear color sanded it went over it again with clear you know they did their layers so that what happened was the final layer is just one solid same level layer of clear over the over the tank and when you do that you have a smooth tank that you can run your hand over and you won't feel any bumps or any you won't indication of where the actual paint and the metal are separated underneath because what they've done is they've added this layer of like glass over it and it's not glass it's you know a clear coat but at the same time it gives that glass feel cuz it adds shine it adds depth and when you polish it up and do the final color sand and buff on it it just looks like polished glass. You know what I mean? And it turned out really beautiful. Kudos to the guys that made that bike. Um, maybe I can find some pictures. I don't think I took pictures of it, but it was, it was blue with yellow and brushed, um, brushed steel underneath. So if you remember that bike, you'll know what I'm talking about. Now let's flash back to the fruity flake, um, (laughs) cereal crumble tank. That thing you could tell where they had laid the tape down to separate the colors. It looked like they did a base coat on top of another base coat because there was definitely some, a layer of paint there instead of blending in, uh, seamlessly to the next layer. A lot of times when you lay a design down, you'll lay some tape, then you'll lay some paper over it. You spray your color, you let it dry, you bake it, you know, you, the, the enamel hardens and or not enamel if you're in California anymore, it's water-based paint, but it doesn't matter. Whatever type of paint you're using, once that top layer hardens, you peel the tape very carefully and you let it dry all the way because if you peel it before that, it will rip the edges. And even if it's so tiny, like I was really, I really looked close at this stuff. Like I said, it passed the 10-10 rule. From 10 feet away, at 10 miles an hour, you would never notice it. Maybe even 5-5, But I got up next to it and I stuck my face down and I was breathing on it. I was fogging up this motherfucker with my smelly ass breath going, you know what? I see just blemish after blemish here compared to some of the other stuff out there. uh, That's obviously winning awards for reasons. And this guy's over here hawking his stuff at this vendor booth. And I, you know, kudos to him. I mean, if anybody was was as critical about it, maybe people just want a cool-looking tank and sure you take this uh, glittery pattern tank. But when you start looking at it real close, I could see right where he had ripped the tape. I could see little tears in it. He had laid a base coat over another base coat, and so you didn't have that flat layer like when you, like when I'm saying earlier, when you lay a when you lay your tape down, you put some paper down, you spray your design, you bake that, it hardens, everything's good to go you peel the tape and it won't rip hopefully you peel it very carefully even though it's cured properly it shouldn't ri- it shouldn't tear the the edge it shouldn't make a blemish on the edge and there shouldn't be any bleed under if you taped it right and even if there is a little bleed under you know when you when you prep the next part for paint it, you can get rid of it so what you do is now you go back over the part that you painted you lay down some tape you lay paper over that you paint your new level so now both levels of paint are theoretically on the same level and then you kind of get that ready you color sand and buff the whole thing you throw your clear over or you just color sand it you know you don't have to buff a you know non-clear coated thing a base coat you just you color sand it and make sure everything is the same level and it's all smooth and then you start adding your layers of clear and what it should do is the 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 base coats should meet with no indentation, no, you know, height differences, especially if you color sand it down and everything should look hunky dory. And then you lay your you lay your um, I'm sorry, you lay your clear coat over it. And it just wraps it basically in this final outer layer that smooths everything over, and then you color sand above that. You know, you get that all glass shiny smooth, and that's what what adds like that perfect touch. But what you can't do is you can't lay down some paint and then throw down another layer on top of that and then throw like another layer on top of that and then like just rip it off when it when it's good or when it's you, you think it's dried if you're using certain types of paint you got to bake those things you know you can't just like they can air dry sure but you're they're never really going to cure it'll take like a week to cure that way you got to bake them at at least shit i think our we used to bake cars at like 300 degrees, you know, when we were doing. Um, when I used to work in a body shop, they used to bake them in this huge room, and it was, you know, shit. I, I think it was 300, 325, something like that. It's like putting a loaf of bread in, you know, but you're curing the paint, and if you're baking it for a couple hours at that temp, imagine how long it's going to take to air dry. You know what I mean? So. Just if you're going to do it that way, be real careful. Maybe use a knife to separate your paint. Because when I was looking at this um, Fruity Flake Sparkle Tank, I could see where it peeled. I could see the le- levels where he obviously threw a base coat over another base coat. And I, you know, it didn't even look like he had did a final color sand on it or a final sand period on it. Um, it laid down pretty nice. I mean, it wasn't orange peely or anything at least that I could tell with all the sparkle and glitter and distracting colors on it. But there was a couple bikes like that where they made a pattern in the paint and I don't know how they cured it or how they didn't cure it, but there was a couple bikes with blemishes. You know what I mean? I don't know if the builders are looking at that stuff. Cause I don't know, you know, if the builders build the bike and have someone else paint it. I don't know if the painters were there with them. I don't a hundred percent sure how all that goes down, but I think the builders are the judges. And if you've got a builder, that's a proficient painter or knows the techniques that they put into a real show class winning bike, then you'll know like some of the stuff that they see there that, you know, basically is a little bit subpar that could probably win it or lose it for you. So if you're thinking about doing a custom paint job on your bike and you're going to rattle can it, it's totally fine. Um, there's a lot of people that can take a rattle can and make it look like a factory paint job to be honest. And it's just, it all goes into the prep. That's why painting is like part of the, you know, aside from the body work painting is like way more prep. I, I would hate to be a painter. I was, you know, sketchy enough at, at doing body work that that's hard enough to get everything to line up and get body lines to match. And, you know, especially if you got a lot of curves or contours or on cars nowadays, how some body lines uh run the length of the car you know and you want to look down it and see that it's straight you don't want it to be all you know dipped down in the middle or some shit like that once you're done with it and so the same thing on on a custom motorcycle you're trying to match these lines you're trying to get a lot of these bikes had sculpted um frames and sculpted fuel tanks and stuff so you're trying to get all that right that shit's hard enough and then lay and paint over that it's just like dude leave it to a pro Leave it to a pro to do that stuff. And if you practice and get good enough and try to get everything to line up and not be lumpy, then it looks pretty sweet. And if you look at a lot of factory fuel tanks, you'll notice that they don't, sometimes they might, like some of the Harley Davidson uh, V Rod have um, stripes down them. I know the. This doesn't count because it's a decal. If you're laying decals under clear coat, you're, it kind of doesn't count because a decal definitely has the thickness of the vinyl. So you can get away with lumps and bumps if it's vinyl. But if it's paint, there's no reason to have lumps and bumps. You know what I mean? Unless you're freaking... It was a 10 base coat uh, paint job and you you're looking for like a textured effect on purpose. You know what I mean? Like maybe some flames or something like that. But if you're just doing a tank... And some of the other bikes that I saw, uh, it wasn't even the tank. It was just the the design in the bike. And you don't take the time to get everything to lay down and all that stuff. Then yeah, that could be the, the difference between having something that looks good or having something that looks good from the five, five rule or the ten ten rule. So yeah, maybe in another episode, I will go over what little I know about painting and, body prep and all that stuff, because I think there's probably a lot of people uh, out riding right now that it's summer, but come fall uh, in California, we don't really have a riding season, but I know in other parts, that's like when you do all the customization, I know the stock versus square guys, right? (laughs) Stock versus squares. The stock is for square guys are doing an excess and they sent it out the paint and fucking 800 bucks, dude. So that guy better do, do them a solid, uh, on their XS 1100, because I tell you what you could buy, you know, you could, f- well, I don't know what they have planned for that thing, but that's pretty good coin for, um, just a, a tank and a couple of fenders or wh- whatever they haven't painted. So, I mean, that's the price of perfection though. You know what I mean? So, so yeah, maybe, in, maybe in a later episode, I will cover Uh, the ins and outs of sort of customization to the best of my knowledge alright well now let's get on to our technological half of the show and again I'd like to know what you're eating right now Hmm. yeah that sounds good I'm gonna go get something to eat too I'll be right back ah fuck ah Jesus I just did the most dangerous thing ever i'm home alone family's out of town still summer break for them i just hiccuped while eating some of the world's hottest fucking hot sauce holy shit more dangerous than wheeling a bike alone off a cliff in the middle of the forest oh geez, i sound now i sound like matthew lillard and christopher walken I had a baby on the phone to be able to do the rest of the show without sniffing every five seconds. That was a bad idea to take a dinner break in the middle of recording. Oh, God. I'm going to go drink some wine. I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. And I'm ready for some action. That's right. I'm ready for some action, I tell you. I'm ready to start talking about some technological breakthroughs. Something, you know. All right. Well, let's talk about some. Seriously, seriously. Now that I've now that I got your mind going, thinking about your custom bike paint and how shitty it probably looks that you did it in your garage with the rattle can. And actually, that probably looks better than somebody tried real hard with a spray gun that doesn't know what they're doing. So don't doubt yourself. And I've also asked you to find the a left hand OEM picture I'm not talking about going to the internet and seeing what some squid posted up at their bike but go to a, a factory site and you know Yamaha like I said has got pretty, pretty nice galleries and I think Kawasaki does too but go to like anybody else and try to find a fucking left hand side of the bike you know try to see what the kickstand where does it mount you, you can't they don't like to show that so now let's talk about something else near and dear to my heart totally automotive related stuff. Technology. Now, as humans, our bodies have been developing for thousands of years. I wouldn't say hundreds of thousands because I'm not 100% sure how old Homo sapien is. But I do know that for the eons that we've been alive, our body has been developing and it's been getting better. We've been getting better at fighting off disease. We've been getting better, you know, our brains actually got bigger. We've been developing more wrinkles in them to think, deeper thoughts. Not if you're me. I still misplace my wallet every morning and I put it right by the bedside when I go to bed at night. But if you're the normal human, your body has been evolving in ways over the past millennia that, you know, technology has come in. Throughout the eons, throughout the ages, and new technologies have made certain parts of our bodies obsolete. When we dis- when we discovered how to make fire, kind of made being really hairy obsolete. Now, if you are in the, um, you know, Italy, I have no idea why you're so hairy. I'm just saying, for most of Europe. In the frozen regions, they lost all their hair. So don't ask me why Italians are so hairy. It might be like certain breeds of bird, you know, looking similar, but having different colorations to attract their species. I have no idea. But the body has also, you know, we've we've certainly, uh, whatever our bodies couldn't adapt to do, which is, you know, the brain is an amazing thing and it will do amazing things to your body. You know, I've seen people get half their heads blown off. And the brain just, like, readjusts, and all of a sudden, there you go, you've got, you know, it takes over for both both halves of the body now. And it's, you know, they always, you usually work on the opposite side of, you know, your right hand is controlled by your left side and vice versa. But when there's a shortage, you know, just like when you have a, a lung shortage, your you know, your brain obviously uh, compensates for a lot of different things. Your body has developed from that. You know, you you can actually think your way into specific, uh, behaviors and your body will react a different way. So the mind is a very powerful thing. The human body reacts to that. The human body is a wonderful thing. I mean, if you're talking about something that can like go corrupt and mutate and eat itself and kill itself or something that can take, if you don't know how sex works, you better plug your ears right now, but something that can take, you know, part of one person and part of another person and mix them together and create a human life basically from nothing from, you know, a scrambled egg. And, you know, the, it's just crazy what our bodies can do. And the more you train, the more you develop muscle memory, it's, you know, we always talk about it in sports and riding is no different um the basically you know all the motorcycle controls that we have w- modulating this modulating that uh, w- at the same time rolling on this and pressing that shifting here you know what i mean and leaning over to turn and looking ahead to where we want to go foreseeing what's around the turn where we where we want to be all you know w- we're doing all this stuff at once. And if you watched a really crazy gamer play and you know, you get a controller in your hand and you're like, Oh, you know, what's moved forward. What's moved back. What shoot you have to do. And one at a time until you get it all down. But once you get it down, that's what I'm talking about. The adaptive qualities of your brain, your amygdala, I believe is like what does all that. And like just amazing, amazing things that our bodies can do. Over the course of, you know, the, the dawn of civilization till present day, We have gone through certain cycles of having technology rise and fall and rise and fall. And the people that got used to technology got soft. The Romans talked about it. You know, the empire eventually declined because people weren't these hard-fit warriors that, you know, when Rome first started, they were getting their asses beaten by the Samnites all the time. Um, The same thing, you know, happened here. We were an agricultural agrarian society and you know we're, we had to work the pi- the first pioneers if you didn't work you know hell the natives even that were here before us well before us knew if you're not active and moving around you know you lose and there were ancient civilizations that that happened with too you know eventually they the technology got the better of them there's some civilizations we don't even know what happened to them like what the hell and could it be attributed to attributed to the fact that they developed a certain technology that like, you know, made them soft or weak or the human body got hit with something that it hadn't been hit with before and they couldn't adapt. So the thing I want to talk about, there's a couple things here. The first, first of all, the thing I want to talk about is, you know, the few, we, we always wonder about what it's going to be like in the future, what it's going to be like in the next five, 10, 15, 20 years. But I'm telling you, it's been happening for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I'm talking about this technological brink that we're looking forward to, but we've actually kind of, you know, we've reached it. We're, we're in the midst of it right now. It's just sometimes it's hard to see when you're not, you know, you're seeing the forest for the trees type of thing. Now, I, I've i heard it over and over and over again. I've heard it, I've said it myself, and I've heard it on different podcasts. Oh, what's wrong with just getting a beginner bike to teach you the rudimentary things? things, you know, whether, whether you're a mechanic or a writer teaching you the rudimentary skills needed and the basic properties of how, you know, suck, bang, blow, you know, jizz, whatever the hell that stupid thing is, suck, bang, blow, squeeze, um, you know, how an engine works and how you need, you know, fuel, air, and spark basically. And then if you're not a mechanic, and you're just a rider. well, then how about just getting the basics down on that? You know, getting a shitty machine with no ABS and no fuel injection or whatever, you know, no traction control, getting out there, learning how it works. Because over the last few years, we've been seeing so much stuff trickle down, even into base models now. Fuel injection, I mean, it still hasn't made it to every single thing, and I don't know why, and pretty soon I'm sure that's going to go away. Same with ABS and traction control. It hasn't trickled down to every single thing, but it's making its way. It's already making it to the dirt side of things too, where you think you don't want ABS on dirt and you definitely don't want traction control on dirt, do you? But there are bikes that have it and there are bikes and riders that are continuing to uh, race differently and ride differently because of these things exist. So this is kind of like a three or four, maybe even five part issue. And to begin with, I just want to talk about, I asked the question in the beginning, should we should we push for things that take control away from us or should we pull back from things that make us dumber? And I, you know, that's a kind of a tongue in cheek sort of thing because should we push for things that are luxuries and should we push for things that make it safer to ride? Should we push for things that advance us? And when I'm talking about that, you can look at any anybody that's been racing for the last 10 years valentino rossi talked about it and i think casey stoner and nicky hayden all these guys that have been racing around for some time that are still in it and hell you know people like john McGinnis and jeff may and all those guys that are that are older you know older racers have definitely seen it coming you know Things have changed. And what it is, is it's because the new guys that are coming in, the 16 and 17 and 18 year olds that are transitioning into, you know, now the top tier uh, racing series, what they do, they ride differently. And these old guys to keep competitive, they've seen these technologies come and go. They developed a certain riding style. And over the last like five years, things have really changed and things are really becoming integrated that were before um i don't know if they weren't they were around they just weren't an integral part of how they were like an add-on almost you know what i mean and it was kind of like something that uh maybe was not necessarily considered necessary but nowadays everything is traction control uh let's just take that for instance traction control and abs and they go hand in hand and also uh, stability control and stuff like that all these all these little things that go hand in hand especially since the quote imu launched you know at, at the uh went around the, the motor show circuit a couple of years ago it's just gone off the hook from there and basically what it is is we're taking these bikes that really haven't changed that much they might have been getting a little bit lighter they're definitely getting more powerful though And the thing is, is you were doing the same sort of stuff. You can see that lap times have been going down and down and down. Uh, Speeds have been getting faster and faster and faster. And you can attribute that to the way people are riding with these controls. Now, this is like looking on the bright side of things, but there's always a dark side, right? So the bright side is that, look, we can get lighter. We can push harder. We can do more things because... We've got these things taking over for us now and helping us when we put too much input in, when we don't put enough in, when we, you know, we get a little wobbly, there's no such thing as that anymore. You're riding a computer. A computer is taking over your thought process and putting it into practice where you are just, you know, basically manipulating you. You see where you need to go. The computer sees what you need to do, basically. And that's how we're interacting with motorcycles these days, be it something. Something as simple as, um, okay, a, a traction control or en- engine management that cuts power to the motor to keep you from going in too fast or leaning over too far. You know, and this and that. ABS. You know, it doesn't have to be super advanced IMU shit. I'm talking, you know, even ABS. Simple ABS is already modulating the brake and keeping you from locking up the wheel because you're you're not doing it yourself. So. We've already been experiencing this stuff from in in a day to day, you know. Whether you're a commuter, and, and then when you race, it just takes it to that next level. Or if you really push it on the streets, you know, you're taking the technology to the umpteenth degree to which it was designed for, and that's what's taking away from your muscle memory and your body. Uh, I actually heard somebody talking about playing video games and using the to memorize a track. It's great. I can tell you the twists and turns of tracks I've never been to that are in other countries. But the thing is, is to ride them is a totally different experience because your muscle memory isn't there, right? So with all of these things, these rudimentary things, now becoming obsolete because you've got a computer enhancing the ride you you're seeing guys go faster you're also seeing it become a little bit safer it won't let you do certain things so you can push it that much harder but guaranteed you get on a different bike or you get on an older bike you're gonna eat shit you know i don't think some of the people that that ride to the limit today could step back and do that 10 years ago on some of the machines that were out then even the cutting edge stuff because of the way that you know, their muscle memory is a totally different skill set than what somebody's muscle memory from 10 years ago that has adapted to the new shit is. And I've heard people talk all about it. People had to adapt to Marquez winning. And and as you've seen, people have kind of been adapting. And now he (laughs) hasn't won every single, you know, race like he did in 2014. Now people are catching up. And now people are getting a little bit better. And they're getting, you know, adapting basically – developing a new muscle memory skill set, uh, to compete. And the thing is, is that, you know, as far as I'm going to get into a, a cars pretty soon here. So I don't want you to, to fret because it, it all, it all basically goes with, um, you know, technology and it, it, it'll translate to motorcycles. You'll, you'll see, but basically part of this, um, stemmed from a text that I got from Dr. K and Dr. K is a bloody moron, but he doesn't get it. But the thing is he's an outsider looking in. So he was, he was reading some stuff and he had listened to some podcasts talk, me talking about technology and all this and that. And here's a text that he sent me. I was wondering that with all the technological advances that are being put in vehicles and motorcycles and what you've mentioned in previous podcasts about making everything easier and safer, if they would ever install slash have the need for a balancing system like segways and hoverboards have, so you wouldn't have to even put your feet down when you stop. Seems excessive, but it might help when you're leaning so you don't overbalance? Question mark. Now, I fired back saying that, in my opinion... It was one more thing that would help the human body to unlearn what it's been evolving for thousands of years to learn innately, and that's balance. I know how hard it is to do a wheelie on a bicycle. Some people have balance, some people don't. I was a skateboarder for a long time, but it was hard for me to surf. It took me a little while to figure out snowboarding, but I got really good at that, and it's because I get in there and do it. Now, if I had a board that balanced for me or a bike that popped the wheelie for me or even wheelie bars on my bike, I would not be able to wheelie a bicycle. I would not be able to surf or skate or snowboard or roller skate, or play hockey, or any of that shit, because I wouldn't be doing it. It's the same as working out with a machine rather than free weights. You, these, there's these little minor things that happen in that situation where when you're working out with free weights and you're working out with the machine, you can't, You, you if you, can bench press 225 with the machine or you can squat like 300 with the machine try and do that with free weights and i guarantee you won't be able to do it cuz your stabilizing muscles haven't developed you're going you're using a specific set of muscles to go th- through the range of motion on that particular whatever exercise you know exercise abc whatever it is and your your stabilization muscles and the extraneous like extracurricular muscles haven't developed And what that does, that means that you can't really do a dead, you know, apples to apples weight at that particular um, exercise through that range of motion with the same stability and even the weight load the same thing goes for balancing on a bicycle a skateboard on one foot Uh, if you're a little kid you have to learn that shit you have to go through life and you have to learn how to hop on one foot i can see it with my own kids my kids are only 19 months apart one kid can do some ballerina ass shit and I know the boys develop a little bit later, but he is younger. He has a hard time hopping on one foot more than like three times. He's only four years old, you know? So he's he can't ride a balance bike where my daughter had at four years old, she was cruising around. He refuses to get on it because he's no good at it. And the thing is, is, he'll never be good unless he gets on and does it because he'll never learn balance. So having these things make it easier for us, sure. You'll never learn to brake properly. You'll never learn to, heaven forbid, uh, fucking something happens and the abs goes out i mean i guess if, if your brakes go out your brakes go out regardless but let's just say something happens where the modulator goes out but you still have brake pressure and all this and that you know weird scenario but you're gonna be locking it up because you're not gonna know that you you know there's a three quarters and then there's like all the way it's like an on on off switch for you everything's an on off switch giving it throttle in the corners on off giving it throttle coming out of a corners on off Hey, listen, it's it's AI and it's a robot taking over for you, right? Sort of, yeah. So I told Dr. K that, you know, basically your body has taken thousands of years to learn this shit. You'd also have to take into account several different things in that case. You know, gyroscopic moments, centrifugal and centripetal force, cornering, leaning over, all this shit that I didn't expect him to know since he doesn't ride. But there's a bigger thing than balance, than, you know, an auto-balancing uh mechanism then goes into cornering you know what i mean it, there's there's a bunch of different factors at play here so i did tell them that i also posted on our facebook page that little c1 like weird enclosed scooter thing that they were planning hey if you're enclosed and you're only on two wheels sure a self-balancing thing could be great i doubt you'll be cornering the same way you will on a motorcycle. You know what I mean? And if you do, they would probably have some way to turn off the self-balancing thing while you're cornering or turn on a sort of counterbalancing lean thing. So, you know, it's not quite apples to apples when you're talking about developing specific technology for that. However, it brings me to the, you know, case in point, uh, uh, moving right along from motorcycles into automotive stuff, being replaced by, uh, AI and robots. Are you scared of that? People freaked out when the Yamaha robot came out and said they're going to, like, come after Rossi. He didn't, you know, they didn't really mean it. We don't really know what what is capable to do that shit yet, whether it could be used for safety or whatnot. There's, there's a lot of stuff that could be used. So we just don't really happen to know. But... The thing is, is that I've been listening to a lot of stuff about autonomous cars. If you go back to episode four, which is still, for some reason, the most listened to episode, it's the CITS, which is the uh, Communicative uh, Intelligent Transportation System or some shit like that. Hell, I did the episode and I forget what it stands for, but... That episode is is the most listened to one I have. I don't know if somebody's using it to hack something, maybe. I don't know. Maybe there's a reason why it's most listened to. Maybe it's actually exciting to hear about the future. But at any rate, episode four and a couple subsequent episodes after that where I kind of do some aftershock talking about it, you know, we talk about how the world is going to work, how things are going to communicate with each other to work, and how the V2V shit is already happening. Um a little bit about autonomous stuff. I think I went about autonomous vehicles a little bit later in a couple episodes, but I've been listening to a lot more shit lately about it and, you know, having these discussions at work and stuff just because it, like I'm telling you, this brink, this technological brink that we think we're coming up on. We're in the midst of it. We're developing it right now. We've been having it. They had, um, you know, CITS vehicles in what that, what did I say in that episode? I think there was a test that they had in Michigan in like 2008 or 10 or some shit. You know what I mean? Where they did 3,000 vehicles to see how they communicated all the shit. I mean, we're already talking stuff that's been in development for quite a while. So as far as autonomous cars and autonomous vehicles and AI taking over the the human function, I, I heard an interesting statement that we hold autonomous cars at a much higher, um, uh, standard than we hold humans. And that right now, if you're a human, I've listened to a few motorcycle podcasts where somebody took their driving test three times before they passed it, they were in another country. And granted, it's like the easiest place in America to get any license. It's so ridiculous how easy it is to get a license here. And if you, if you fail here, Oh my God, you would not even consider driving in another country you know what i mean like they probably would not have you on the roads so a self-driving car can probably pass a driving test right now and i'm not even going to go into the technologies that cars are getting because we don't need to know all that shit this is a motorcycle podcast but it is important to talk about this ai replacing us because what we're seeing on the automotive side eventually always trickles over to the motorcycle side correct and what i've been talking about already at length is the ai in your motorcycle these assistive systems taking over for what you as a human have taken thousands of years to develop and learn so you know i was listening about toyota and let's go back to february of this year actually uh lexus so in february of 2016 there was a crash in mountain view california and basically, it was a Google autonomous vehicle. It was a Lexus, and it had the Google autonomous system in place on this platform. And there had been like 14 or 15 crashes with these autonomous cars, but there had always been either a human behind it, like the autonomous system wasn't in, wasn't in control of the car, or somebody else crashed into it, like it wasn't the autonomous program's fault. So, what makes this one significant? Is that they're saying that out of 1.4 million miles of driving collectively, all these autonomous cars and developing this shit, this is the first real accident that the car did. Now, the important thing. Let me let me set the scenario up for you. <clears throat> so, from what I understand, there was you know the autonomous car. There was a person inside of it. They didn't have control of it though. They they couldn't interact. The autonomous system had total control. Now, the car was turning right. And the lanes are pretty wide, so what it did is they've programmed it to act like a human and kind of edge over to the right-hand side, slow down, and then turn. Well, you know, at the intersection, there's they're never in the middle. They're always toward the intersection, toward the, um, you know, right where the corner is. The sewer drains that's where they put them they don't usually put them in the middle of the road they put them they drain right before they get to the lowest point which is usually the intersection and anyway that's where you want it draining if people are going to be walking across right there you don't want it any Extra shit to go down into the, you know, miss the middle and go down into the intersection. So they put big ones right there. Well, what had happened was there was some sandbags covering it up because they were doing some construction. They didn't want the shit going down into the sewer. So the Google car gets over and it slows down. It was only doing two miles an hour, apparently, according to the report that I uh, read and uh, show I listened to. It saw the bags. So it kind of edged back to go around the bags. Well, like I said, the lane was wide. There was a bus behind the car. The car saw the bus there and knew it was coming. And the bus was only doing like 15 miles an hour because it uh, was slowing down for the intersection as well, I guess. So the Google car, like I said, they programmed it to act like a human and a human would guess that, you know, I'm driving. There's a car behind me. I have the right of way still, I can go around this obstacle and then continue to make my turn after I avoid the sandbags, you know, and and it's like, you know, I see the sandbags, there's a bus behind me, I'm going to go around the sandbags. Well, what happened was the bus tried to squeeze by to make the light, who knows if it was turning yellow, you know, I don't, I'm not sure of the scenario. But when the bus squeezed by, the car went around the sandbags and bumped into it. And Google immediately took responsibility for the crash. So what they said was that it was acting like a human and relying on what it it thought it should expect from another human. It thought the bus would let it in. It was counting on human kindness on the bus driver's part based on what they've seen in human driving behavior. So this autonomous car was really acting like a human. and And they're guessing, my guess is, they didn't say this, nobody said this, so don't quote this as, as anything Google said, but, uh, I'm guessing myself that a human would have done the same thing. You know, you're not going to fucking run over sandbags and you're still in the lane. You still have the right of way. You haven't made the turn yet. The person behind you technically shouldn't be squeezing by you and blowing by you, even though, you know, usually right hand lanes are wide enough for the car to turn right and another car to kind of squeeze by. And that's what the bus tried. It's a fucking bus. It's wide. So when the car came back like, shit, I'm not going to run over these bags, boop, hit the bus. So, the because <clears throat> Google said that it was really important that this happened, because they need to program cars not only to obey the letter of the law, but also the spirit of the road. And that's what they tried to do. After this crash, they implemented like 3,500 additional new tests to try and mitigate the be- this behavior in the future. But there's only so much that you can plan for, and there's only, you know, even humans, we're we are actually pretty safe when it comes down to it. I I didn't know how safe we were. Apparently there were only 38,000 deaths. That sounds like a lot, but think of the population of the United States. There are like more than 38,000 people oh, probably in a fucking five square miles of where I am right now. Like this town has like double that. I'm guessing. A little bit more than double that, I think. So, I mean, that's like half of this town, but shit, the next town has like three times what this town has, you know what I mean? Like 38,000 people nationally dead is not very much, Um, but you know... We're still, the reason we want to do all this is to make shit safer. We understand that. So what they're trying to do is, is make these cars, you know, understand the spirit of the road and not just the letter of the law, because the law of the road, the law of the human is that there are no laws, you know, anything can happen. Um, so, you know, they're trying to figure it out and the auto industry says that that there needs to be, um, a hundred million miles of flawless driving from autonomous vehicles But some people are saying that there needs to be 100 billion miles to prove that their, you know, safety is up to par and meets the consumer needs. And, you know, there's less than 1% margin of error, preciseness, but still that 1% that happens, people are going to point the finger and say, look, it was an autonomous vehicle. It doesn't know what, you know, this is fucking dangerous. But the thing is, is that they've actually gone more miles than humans have without crashing. And let me see. I have some numbers here about what. Let me see where I put these. Okay, so here's some numbers for you. Roughly, there are 1.08 fatalities. Now, that's just a hair over one. And it's not 1.8, which is almost two. It's 1.08 fatalities per 100 million miles driven. So humans are already pretty safe. And that this means that uh, autonomous cars may not be sold for a safety, like that they're safer, making things safer for us. Rather, it'll be like convenience or efficiency or space savings. I'm going to talk about in a second. So let me talk about this Uh, to segue into that. Think about this for a second. The typical American car spends 4% of its life on the road, which means 96% of its life is parked. And, you know, just like a human, they say you waste your life sleeping. Most of your life is spent sleeping or in bed or whatnot. It's just, you know, when you think of your car, unless you are a truck driver and there's always, you know, outliers on either side, some are used less, some are used way more. Like if you're a truck driver or you use your truck as a delivery, not truck, uh, your car, whatever, whatever your vehicle is, if you have a vehicle that's job specific, you're always on the road, you know, delivery van, uh, courier car, you know, truck, hauling truck, there's certain cars that may be used, but most of us use our car to get from point A to point B. And then we park it, and then we go do whatever we're going to do. And then we come back, and we go from point B to point C. And then we go do whatever we're going to do. So regardless of how many how many things you go do and what you do, the percentage is never going to change. You could, you could use your car 20 times a day, but... Of all, if you take that twenty and and measure the percentages, it would probably still come out to four percent being used and ninety six percent being parked because no matter how many times you use it, it's the percentage that it's being used versus you doing whatever so like I said, unless you're like a pizza delivery person or somebody that's like a courier or, you know, a private detective that's always driving around doing some shit, then your car, the typical car, only drives for 4% of, of its life. So the thing about the autonomous vehicles is that they're... One, one idea is they could be shared, kind of like Uber or a taxi. Of course, unless you live in an urban area this doesn't make sense. So there's always going to be people that don't use autonomous vehicles because they commute to work from very far away. They live in an urban or rural area and, you know, or a suburban area. And basically not really, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Even if you and your neighbor share a car, maybe you guys work at opposite ends of town. So there's always places where it's not going to make that much sense. There's a reason why public transportation doesn't make a whole lot of sense in some cities. You know, if you live downtown in a metropolis, sure, that makes a lot of sense. Sometimes people don't even need cars. Like LA, we really don't need cars. The only reason that we have them is because we want to get somewhere butt fast and we don't want to sit on a park bench next to you know, Benny, the homeless guy, or get shot by a cop for looking weird or something like that. So we get in our own car and we drive. And nowadays, even getting in your own car doesn't guarantee you won't get killed by a cop. That is for another, another time. So anyway, you know, the the practicality, to be honest, uh, it probably makes sense now, but we just like, don't, we know, we're a little bit selfish. We don't want to do that. But also think about this. What do you have in your car? So You know, using an autonomous car, it could drop you off and then go get somebody else. So that that takes away the four percent lifetime of, you know, usage and the 96 percent of just sitting there and it could just drop you off at work. And then guess what? Drive back home, get your wife and kid and take them somewhere, you know, drop them off at school and at work. And then it could go out and do shit for, you know, whatever for somebody else. If you had if you had shared cars, the thing that this could do was is reduce parking spaces at like works and at malls and things like that. If you constantly had a taxi taking you everywhere, you would never need a parking spot at a mall. Right. Or, you know, you could you could open up spaces to be used for other things like parks, recreation other buildings, you know what I mean? It, it would really clear up a lot of space to have shared uh, autonomous vehicles. And like I said, that's not always practical. But in, in cases where it were, then fine. Like in New York, I know a lot of people just pay to park for months and months. I, I've heard about it before. I've, I've listened to shows about people that lived in New York. Parking was atrocious. You basically get in fistfights over parking spots, especially in the fucking winter time. You will pay... To have storage for a place to put your car in for like eight months while you're not driving it, just so that when you do drive it for, you know, let's say the five times a year that you drive it, you can get out of the city or go upstate or whatever the fuck you do when you live in New York and you're not using you know, public transportation. Otherwise, you got taxis and shit. Now, think if everybody had a taxi, you would never need a parking spot. You would never need to fight over this. You'd never need to worry about getting a residency with a garage or a high rise, how many parking spaces your high rise has in it, and you can't have more than one car and all this bullshit. Same with San Francisco. San Francisco. And parts of L.A. are the same way. I mean, I, I see where not having a car would be the greatest thing in the world because you wouldn't have to fight for parking, pay for parking, find parking. You could get dropped off right at where you're going and be done with it. And the car can go run around all day doing the same shit for other people, right? So that's one of the benefits of autonomous cars if we were to be able to use them like that. And, you know, that then it comes into collectively who's going to buy it. Are you and your neighbor going to split it and then it's going to split in between you two and then, you know, you're going to have to plan like a timeshare when you can go on vacation and when you can't and all this shit. I mean, that's what makes all this shit kind of not worth it if you're looking at it from that point of view. But at the same time, I mean, autonomous vehicles can really, really become valuable if we let them. So one of the things that they were talking about is that it could free up spaces for parks and things like that. You know, the, the, the less area you need to store a vehicle all day while it's doing nothing, the more area you have for other shit. But, uh, you know, then there were, kind of made a really good point, you know, playing devil's advocate, especially if you have kids, you know that you usually have like 55,000 fucking toys. You have snacks, you have bottles of water, you have diapers, you have diaper bags, you have a fucking umbrella, you have an extra change of clothes in case your kid craps himself while you're in traffic. You know, you have the family dog's bed back there. You have, you know, an emergency kit in your car. You should always have an emergency kit in your car. Um, uh, Toolkit. kit, who knows what you have back there. Maybe you store a change of clothes. Maybe you keep your gym bag. There's a lot of shit that you keep in your car sometimes. And what happens then if you have an autonomous vehicle or if you have a shared autonomous vehicle, you know, then you're going to have to carry all that shit around with you. And you're going to have to like account for that. There might be a new business model where we all have shared autonomous cars or we Uber an autonomous car to work. And the new business model is that you go out and you own, or or somebody owns locker spaces now. And now that doesn't become such a bad thing. You know your work now. I'm I'm, I'm guessing that locker spaces will take up much less uh, area than an actual parking garage. You could have a little locker shed or a little locker building. Even make it a separate area at your work. Something like some shit like that. You know what I'm saying? So. It is a little bit of an inconvenience to think, especially the more shit that you have that you keep in your car, and especially having two kids, I know how that goes. You know, sometimes your car looks like a fucking city dumpster, and sometimes, like one time, it might look really, really clean, but you still have like a diaper bag or a bag of toys or beach supplies or some shit like that. So there's a lot of stuff that people keep in their cars, and you know... That's uh, the other thing about autonomous vehicles, and and uh, coming on basically with all of this, you know, sh- being shared as a, as something like that, where it could really be useful. But there's a lot of things still that society hasn't worked out. Now, those aren't like red flags; those aren't stop signs; those aren't things that we can overcome. Of course, we can overcome that. We just need to live down a little bit, get rid of some of our shit that we've been collecting forever, and all the things we think we need, and get back to, you know, think think about. <laughs> Last episode when I was talking about all these touring guys on their big ADV bikes with like 800 pounds of gear, which already side tangent probably overloads the gross vehicle weight rating for your bike because then you plop your ass on there and you have like 500 pounds of gear and you're only on a 650 and now it weighs 1,500 pounds. Yeah, think about it, dudes. Anyway, so to roll that back, you know, taking shit with you, imagine. Just just imagine being the guy on the tour divide like that I was talking about last week where these mountain bikers go from Canada to Mexico or vice versa, depending on which way they're traveling, and uh, basically they're doing that with the least amount of supplies that they have. They still have to have tents. They still have to have clothes for the inclement weather, and they still have to carry all these spares and tools and food. I mean, they do it with this little amount of shit, so... We can do it, people. If they can make it from Mexico to Canada, you know, hell, even if they had a kid, like, on a baby carrier, that would be the ultimate race. Fucking A. Uh, You know, have a little kid in a baby seat in the back. Just add a diaper bag, you know, like, they can do it. You can do it. You don't need your car to be, you know, the fifth or sixth room of your house, all right? So, basically, that was one upside. The other thing with autonomous cars and basically safety and i didn't you know i was thinking about this about motorcycles i've been hearing more and more motorcycles crash been seeing a lot more people crash it's fucking human error you know what i mean and it's nothing that any of these systems and ai can can help you with um you know until they put like a a steering damper that's that can actuate the steering you know uh you know mod actuate it and move it itself like a servo motor on there. There's nothing that it'll be able to do to help you if you get too stupid. And I just saw a picture of a dude crashes, uh, YZ or his FZ09 or something on the internet. And it didn't show what he did before. He conveniently edited that part out, but he said it got a speed wobble. I don't know what the fuck he was trying, if he was trying to wheelie or what the fuck he was doing, but it definitely tossed him at 80 miles an hour. So, I don't, he said he was only doing 60 and tried to gas out of it and got up to 80, which could be. Those things are pretty quick, pretty fast. But at any rate, got a head shake and a speed wobble. and Then eventually, you know, a tank slapper into a like a high side and the guy went flying. So, you know, there's only so much that the the systems in place can do to help you to save you from your own idiocy but on cars it's a lot different you know what i mean and i listened to a show called tech stuff i read an article from a newspaper called or a a site called the verge i've read some shit on new york times and even from a manage uh, claims management magazine which i'll get to in one second But they all kind of address the same thing, which is, you know, if we're going to be talking about vehicles and safety and going back to the CITS episode, episode four of creative writing, we're talking about how things interact with each other and how safety plays a part in that motorcyclists have the biggest amount of control. And we always probably will have yet. That means that we'll always have the biggest amount of human error. Once cars are fully autonomous and, you know, people give up their, their freedom in a car. Um, it really comes down to human error and motorcyclists as people that can have a lot of rider aids and stuff like that, will never have a fully autonomous motorcycle unless you're riding on the back of that Yamaha robot. (laughs) He's wearing the shirt that says honk if the bitch or whatever fell off. So yeah. So anyways, so we're already pretty safe. As I stated before, humans have a less than You know, is barely over one fatality per hundred million miles driven. So this thing about about autonomous cars being safer, that's not going to be the selling point. It's going to be the ability to do that other shit, like run around and do other stuff for you during the day while it should be, you know, a typical car would be parked. And once they're proven to be safe and they start working well, you can actually... Uh, argument has been made that you can start removing some safety features that we need for human error now you can start removing stuff like airbags and all the modules if you you know a lot of cars nowadays especially luxury cars tout 21 airbags you know what i mean there's fucking 21 airbags and when you're looking at a repair manual for this shit or you're looking at like a service manual and you look at all the fucking sensors and modules and computers that go into just just the airbag system. It's fucking crazy. And then to think that they're in your seat, in your A pillar, in your B pillar, in the steering wheel, in the dash, side curtain airbags that shoot down from the fucking side, you know, the, the, uh, <clears throat> not the rocker, but the, uh, fuck, well, I can't think of it right now, like the roof line, you know, they shoot down some. I, I, I you know, I'm not a big car f- fan anymore, but I'm pretty sure there's some that are like in, uh, that shoot up your your knees like in the seat <clears throat> so that your knees don't go under the dash there's some that shoot out from the fucking uh, sun visors, like all this crazy shit from the. And then now they have rear passenger airbags, you know, that shoot out of the drivers and pa- out from behind the driver and passenger front seats, and you know, side curtain, you know, twenty fucking some odd airbags in cars nowadays, all to protect us from something stupid that we did to get ourselves in that situation, or somebody else did us, basically human did that to us so when we have autonomous cars and everything's working like it does with the cits program that i talk about uh especially you know when i i gave some examples in some past episodes about drones how drones work and looking at how things can you know it's like a chaos uh all of a sudden you hit a switch you know everything syncs up and everything can move in and out of itself without ever touching, you know what I mean? So it's pretty interesting to see how that stuff works. So when cars get there, when we have that technology and trust me, I mentioned that motorcycles are having that BMW and Yamaha and, and, uh, BMW, Yamaha and Honda, I believe being some of the ones leading it right now because they're part of the CCC and they have cars too. So they're, they're already on board for all this shit. They're working to do that shit for motorcycles, so you know motorcycles will be able to be seen by these cars and hopefully, hopefully avoid us because we're going to be the ones that have the input on those things. You know, if if they can make a car break to avoid an accident, they can make a motorcycle do the same. But they can't quite steer a motorcycle yet, unless they do what I said a few minutes ago, which is put like a servo motor on, on in your triple fort. You know, your triple clamps make it steerable, like a steering damper or something. So. Removing human error means removing safety shit. You can get rid of airbags. You could theoretically get rid of seatbelts if everything works as safe as you want it to. And then you're going to go to that 1% that I was talking about where when, when something does happen and some catastrophic, unavoidable fucking thing, you know, there's a tree falls over. You can't control that shit, but now your car, you know, the one time where that happens and how many, how many people do you know, got hit by trees lately? If you say, like, one, if one of you raises your hand, I'd be surprised. Oh, you, I mean, maybe, is that you? So, at any rate, uh, you know, there's certain things that can't be avoided, and it's fucking fate. You know, it's just your time to go when some weird shit happens, and you got to accept that. You can't blame it on autonomous cars, you can't blame it on safety measures that didn't work, you can't blame it. You know, there's, there's, some, there's some situations that you just can't fucking, you know plan for my cousin got struck by lightning twice fucking nuts so anyway <clears throat> we're we're gonna exclude him from this equation but you know taking all this stuff away and also we're on the verge of electrics electric bikes excite me i haven't ridden an electric bike since the bramo but i know i talked at, at length about victory and how excited i was that they bought bramo and now they're going forward with the fucking you know I can't believe how well they did at Pike's Peak. I'm so excited about that. So electric bikes are coming. Electric cars are here. They're making battery technology better. So how does that equate to all this autonomous shit? Well, if you can start removing shit like crumple zones, all the airbags and modules and like seatbelt deployment modules, a lot of seatbelts, they have a gas um, explosive. You cannot ship this shit in an airplane. You have to ship it ground only. Because when the sensor goes off that it's been hit... The seatbelt tensioner, it's like a shotgun shell basically. And it shoots a fucking ball or shoots a rod mechanism and it locks the seatbelt so that you don't have any give so you're not slinging around. You're held tight into your seat like you're held when you race a race car. If you never raced a race car, you don't have retractable seatbelts. You are fucking glued to the seat. You can't lean forward. That's why race car cockpits have to be very different and the steering wheel comes out to you and that's why the removable because you have to like take it off to squeeze in there and then stick it on, and you—if you got inside of a purpose-built race car—you would see how different it is. Because uh, you know the safety features are literally built into those things. So when you're talking autonomous cars and autonomous vehicles and being able to communicate with other cars and motorcycles and the, your surroundings basically you'll see you can start getting rid of the shit that we have to have now because we have all these errors. You know what I mean? The only thing that you're going to have to have, uh, you will never get to that point. As long as there are motorcycles, sorry to say that, but as long as some guy can come over and fucking crash into you or come at you head on and not alter his course, there is going to be the need for that shit. Cars could be totally autonomous and that'd be cool. That'd be cool. You could never hurt somebody if you didn't, if you wanted to, you would have to like find a way to override the systems. You know what I mean? You'd have to hack the car basically. But if you're on a motorcycle, you can do that shit. And if people are driving non-autonomous cars, they can do that shit. So we're not to that point. We're still very far away from that point. So, you know, let's give it another, there's still cars on the road from like the fifties and forties nowadays. And granted, some of them are collector's cars, but there's still commuter cars, daily commuter cars that I've seen still from the eighties on the road today. So, I mean, we're talking like 30 and 40 year old cars on the roads today being used as daily drivers. So if you can kind of translate that, let's just say that even after autonomous shit becomes um, ubiquitous, then It'll take 30 or 40 more years for all the old shit to disseminate and go away and for the new shit to just all be autonomous. You know what I mean? So after autonomous vehicles come online, expect 30 to 40 years of, um, I don't know, just basically assimilation before you see the shit going away. So we're not going to see all the safety shit that you worry about not using go away right away, but it, it could happen. I mean, if we get everything online, it could happen. Uh, motorcycles are the only, th- only reason I could see why you wouldn't need that because motorcycles are the ones that can still control themselves this far, who knows what the future holds, but getting rid of all that shit that I mentioned, the, the airbag modules, all these control modules that you need for crash avoidance, crumple zones even you know they they have to engineer crumple zones now but if if uh they didn't have to engineer those in you could make cars lighter and that's great because now that the electrics are coming online that means lighter cars you could be more efficient with the same battery you wouldn't have to have all the safety shit on board as well as the battery so get rid of you know let's say 200 pounds of bullshit And that means you could either add another 200 pound battery and increase your distance or that same battery could give you, afford you a little bit more power. And, uh, because there's less weight to push around. So that's an interesting thing to think about when we're talking about how all this shit gets together and, and what they're working on right now. Now, another thing about autonomous cars is the trolley problem. And I've heard this more than one time. And let me, uh, read something to you real fast. So this is from an article in Claims Management, the June 2016 edition. I found it and it's titled, Round and Round, Do Self-Driving Cars Need Morals? And it's by, uh, the author is uh, Greg Horn. And he said, this is a direct quote. For many industry experts, seeing 10 million fully autonomous vehicles on the road by 2025 is a likely occurrence. This potential, coupled with recent issues surrounding accidents between self-driving and human-driven vehicles, brings many concerns to the surface. To date, the accidents that have been reported are a direct result of the autonomous vehicle's reliance solely on if-then programming. For example, the autonomous vehicles won't exceed the set speed limit or cross a solid white line, uh, something that human drivers do every day to safely merge into traffic. And if there doesn't appear to be enough space when merging into traffic, then the computer driven vehicle's response will be inaction, which is in contrast to human drivers who will use their turn signals to show intent to merge in hopes that it will cause oncoming drivers to slow down and allow their vehicle into the lane. Unquote. Now, that's what I'm talking about. The, you know, judgment everything that we learn, muscle memory, all that shit I said at the very beginning of this rant and this whole segment about what we learn as people and how we've been adapting. And and also what I said about obeying the letter of the law versus obeying the spirit of the road and how you will need to drive within traffic. And another important thing that he brings up in the whole you know title of the the um article being do self driving vehicles need morals is that it's the trolley situation all over again and in a few articles that i read and a few shows that i've listened to on this they keep bringing up the trolley question the trolley question i believe is you know <clears throat> there is a you know you see a trolley uh leaving the station and there's two people tied up on the track Or no, let me think. There's like one person tied up on the track or there's like five people tied up on the track. You can jump down and you can pull the lever, but somebody's going to die. What do you do, right? You need morals. Do you kill one person? Do you kill a bunch of people? I'm pretty sure... Or, you know, do nothing basically, and it'll kill five people, go pull the lever and divert it, and it'll only kill the one person. So that, that's a moral choice. That's the computer can't make that you can program it. If five, then, you know, false, if one, you know, switch to one one, yes, you know, you can program it to do that. But I mean, the the illustration that they have in this article is basically something that somebody on another show said, Uh, This article has a little kid chasing a ball into the street from the left, an old person coming from the right, and a truck losing control and tipping over like a tanker truck coming straight for you now what do you do do you swerve out of the way of the of the uh tanker and hit the kid do you hit the grandma you know does the kid have a full life to lead does the grandma already you know at the end of her year so you run her over and avoid the 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 tanker altogether you know minimal damage to the car and no explosion of the fuel tanker but a granny's dead and you perhaps potentially save the kid's life and the truck driver's life and the driver of your car you know there's this whole moral thing that goes into effect and sometimes i've thought about it myself when i'm riding, and i've thought about it while driving when i'm driving my car i would definitely hit another car before i hit any people because cars have all these fucking safety things in them that i mentioned right 25 trillion airbags seatbelt tensioners crumple zones you know all the shit that we have Don't ever swerve away from another car if there's people around or you're going to go up onto a sidewalk or into a fucking park or a playground or a birthday party or a fruit stand. You know They did it in all these chase movies where the guy busts through this fruit stand and watermelons or boxes goes flying. But it's not that cool when it's real life and you mow down a bunch of people. So always hit the car. Always go for the car. And if it kills you, fuck it. You saved 85 other people. You know what I mean? So sometimes... You know, you have to program that into uh, a car. And that's what I was saying. Do you, are you afraid of being replaced by AI? Are you afraid of being replaced by robots? Because this is the sort of shit that people are working on right now. And Toyota has started a research facility, one near Stanford and one near MIT. I mean, these are already developed. I think this happened, um, if not earlier this year, they started last year or something like that. So they've invested a billion dollars, 50 million in or uh 50 million plus 50 million that's not a billion um 500 million into each uh place into each research facility so the one by stanford and the one at mit you know they split the billion between them they're developing ai for automotive technology and they're working on refining the uncertainty in ai they're trying to program wisdom and not just like a if then situation they're trying to give these cars morals they're trying to give uh rider aids in in like a, a motorcycle sort of thing they're trying to prevent uh, perfect rider aids and driver aids is what they're doing and Not necessarily for autonomous cars, they need to give them morals right now. So what they're they're trying to do right now is, at best, give you driver aids that can assist your decisions. And that's what's marketable right now as they're developing the autonomous stuff. So yeah, there's immediate if-then situations that aren't always if-thens, you know, and that's what humans are good at. That's why I'm not necessarily afraid of being replaced by AI, but it is interesting to see what they're coming up with. And the they're trying to program this shit to possibly being able to foresee what should be done now that's good for us riders because if they see a motorcyclist or they see a motorcycle and the and the V to V starts communicating, holy shit, you know this could be potentially dangerous if I hit you and so they just go for another car instead of trying to avoid the car and then they see us that's great for us you know that is actually making things safer um. Uh, supposedly, you know, 99% of the time, there won't be these situations with all the V2V, all the CITS, and all the autonomous systems and safety systems going in. The cars will slow down. The computers can tell each other. It's like I mentioned in CITS. You won't really need stoplights or stop signs anymore because the cars can feed the intersection Um uh, information about what's incoming and what's out, what's outgoing, the uh, the intersection can feed it back, you know, and tell them, hey, you're going this speed, you're going this speed. You guys don't even have to slow down. You just it'll be sketchy for for humans because we're like, oh shit, we're gonna run into that thing, but it'll basically be like a bunch of little drones flying around or driving around and won't hit anything. So for us motorcyclists, all this shit's great when, when they can do that and they can foresee what should be done, recognize that it's a different type of motorcycle and there may be a human operating it and, uh, make the moral decision. So they're working on that shit right now. Um, that article in claims management was really good because it also asked the trolley question. And I think he rounded it off by saying, You know, would it take evasive action and drive into a schoolyard or a park or something like that? Because right now we're programmed to see other vehicles and V to V communication. So it doesn't have V to H vehicle to human communication. So it doesn't sense when people are there. So that's what in his article was really good about, you know, programming, you know, maybe you program it to never go over a sidewalk or the white line uh, on the right or on the left if you're in another country another country that drives on the left-hand side of the road. Maybe you program it to never do that. You know, I'm not hundred percent sure how all that shit works, but as it is like, this is the sort of thing that they're trying, you know, Toyota specifically is trying to figure out. They're trying to solve this trolley question. They're trying to make shit safer for drivers. But of course, like I'm saying, that's going to, that's going to translate over us to us, motorcycle riders as well. So another thing, here's just an interesting thing. Um, Right now they're just working on uh, driver assistance for immediate rollout. Like I said, they're working on that other shit in the background, but some of the tech that they have includes gesture controls and big consoles and shit like that. I mentioned uh, a while back that a lot of smartphone apps are available now for your motorcycle. You just you you get a uh, instrument cluster readout on your smartphone your smartphone has like the gps and the telemetry and all that shit on it already and an accelerometer so it's great you know so it's nothing new to see like a tablet or a small tablet or even a smartphone thing as the controls some cars nowadays though like i took a ride in a tesla a few weeks ago and that thing had a fucking like a a 16 by 12 or like an 18 by 12, basically like monitor, like a computer monitor turned sideways and it was all touchscreen. There was no knobs in that thing for anything. It was so weird. The only knob was the gear shift, I believe, and I'm not even 100% sure about that. I was too busy getting glued to the fucking back of my seat in that thing um, to notice. But everything, everything was on that touchscreen. So that's another thing they're they're working on gesture controls, sort of like every sci-fi nerd's wet dream. You wave your hand. And it does it. You don't have to touch the screen. And maybe soon it'll be holographic and all that shit. Another technology. I said I wasn't going to talk about the technology, so just briefly I'll touch on this. But autonomous cars that you stand outside and you wave it like a fucking air traffic controller, and it follows your hand signals and parks itself. You know, so maybe you you could park cars super close together that way, and you get out, and since you don't need to open the door now, you wedge it in between to super closely parked vehicles and we save on parking spaces that way. Even though your car shouldn't be parked for 96% of its life, and neither should your bike. Get out there and ride. All right, well that's about all I have time for. One last shout out uh goes to the WIR people and I know Michelle's going to take it. You guys aren't giving her enough credit. You guys are a bunch of dickheads and she told me so. And she said, you guys all suck, and um, she's going to poison your nachos. So I wouldn't eat the bean dip, fellas. And if this comes out on Saturday, sorry, bros, but I won't be attending your funeral. And at any rate, Chris, I hope your leg, I hope you can get booted up and make a few passes throw some fucking hot sauce on that thing that thing looked like a chicken leg i like that he called his leg his getaway stick that's pretty fucking funny so anyway keep your eyes peeled on the wir top 10 list check them out on facebook if you haven't already it's pretty cool what they do they have a chalkboard they rotate in and out you go up and down the ladder hopefully you don't fall off the end because then you got to fight your way back on top but there should be there's some pretty cool matchups the fifth spot and the eighth spot, I believe, or the ninth, no eighth spot were the only two spots unchallenged this week. So, uh, good luck to those guys. It's a bye week for them. They're still going to be running, but, uh, let's see what, what comes out of this. And I'm going to, I'm going to have an exclusive interview. I've been guaranteed one, so we'll see if it falls through or not, but yeah, I think it's time to wrap up the show. So I hope you had a good 4th of July. I hope you have a good weekend this weekend. If you're in LA, check out the taco tour, the, uh, LATT, Um, Check that out on Facebook as well. Why don't you just look at Facebook and look up some events in your area? Quit asking me about them all the time. So, at any rate, that's it. Leave us a review in iTunes or Google Play. I would say Stitcher, but I haven't submitted there. So wherever you get your uh, podcast, check check uh, out the show on SoundCloud. Leave a review there. Like it. SoundCloud's a bunch of bullshit anyway. Like a bunch of spammers like like your shit anyway. Like every single episode that comes out, 15 hot chicks from Australia like it. And like one dude that's a DJ from Spain. And like bull fucking shit. I know who's the real people because it's like user blah, blah, blah. Or like Joe Quigley, you know, so... Don't be a dickhead. Go to SoundCloud and, and give a little review. Give us, please, please, go to iTunes. Give us a shitty review. I don't care. Just a review. It helps uh, helps us get up in the. Well, it helps me. Helps me get up in the morning. But it helps us raise up through the ranks. And uh, reviews always help. It gives me feedback. It gives our whole production team here. There's 25 people staring back at me right now. Tongues hanging out, wanting some feedback. So, hey, you guys. It's coming. I know this time it's going to come. They're listening to me this time. Okay? All right. They're all nodding their heads. And uh, so basically... There's one for each letter of the keyboard. That's when I said 25. They all get one letter of the keyboard, and then I get the 26th letter. That's how we type stuff around here. We're, we're that dumb. So anyway, yeah, please leave us a review, even if it's crappy. Please leave us some feedback on Facebook. Like our Facebook page. You can find us at www.creative-writing.com on the interwebs. You can also find us on Twitter at at creative underscore writer. You can find us on Tumblr at creative-writing.tumblr.com Find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash creative writing podcast. And as always, you can email the show at podcast at gmail.com That's writing, not writing. Writing is for chumps that can read, and I can't do either of those things, so damn it anyway go have fun pop some wheelies don't get shot by a cop and don't do anything too stupid you just had the 4th of july we just celebrated the birth of our nation so come on man don't fuck it up this weekend and do something lame and get yourself in the clink all right peace out i did such a good job this week there's no bloopers so maybe i'll make up a little shitty song for you good night you got a big good date, is that great? Get some flowers for your baby. Oh, this has been a Creative Writing Production. Get your hair in the air. Get your blubber above the rubber. Get your knees in the breeze, if you please, chickadees. Woo! Until next week. <laughs>